0: Hi, I'm Carrie Schmidt, and this is Making Sense, a podcast produced by the Star Institute in an effort to further our commitment to impacting quality of life by developing and promoting best practices for sensory health and wellness through treatment, education, and research. This season is sponsored by our community partner, Summit Sensory Gym. Have you ever wondered if there is a way to amplify a child's therapy experience? Well, Summit Sensory Gym is the answer you were looking for. Summit Sensory Integration Therapy Gyms have been shown to be an invaluable tool for parents and therapy providers looking to give their children the best possible care. The benefits of Sensory Integration Therapy Gyms are numerous. They provide a safe and stimulating environment for children to explore and develop their motor language, and social skills in a fun and engaging way. Through this type of therapeutic play, children can learn how to better regulate their emotions and respond to different sensory stimuli. Visit summitsensory.com to learn more and schedule your free design consult. I'm joined today by Dr. Anita Bundy. She's an occupational therapist, and um, thank you so much for being here today. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Carrie. I am um, currently the department head in occupational therapy at Colorado State University, and I've been engaged in play research for a very long time now.
0: I um, saw that was an area of interest and research um, among your many distinctions and awards and all of the the important work that you've done in our field. Um, And when I asked you one of the topics you might be interested in talking about today, you mentioned risky play. And so I was able to, you were able to share some articles with me and I was able to go and look up some of your research. I would love to hear the pathway maybe or some of the things that you found early in your research or curiosities about play that led you to study risky play as a research category and um, you've done some really important findings on the topic
1: well I started studying play um, as part of my doctoral work and um, I was I was interested in the notion that therapists had, and I think still have, but but maybe not as strongly now, that if we helped children to develop skills, those skills would automatically be transferred into their everyday life. And so, I was interested in that. I was interested in studying the relationship, and, and I chose to study the relationship between motor skills. And it, And I needed something functional Um, that children would do. And I was interested in, you know, graduating in my own lifetime and I wanted children to be willing to participate. And so I chose play. And so honestly, play was for me at that point, a matter of convenience. And so I I did my doctoral study. And as I, I, I observed a number of children playing, and as I did, I actually became quite fascinated with with the play part of it, with watching children who had some kinds of difficulties. And I, I there one child in particular who um, will always stay with me. And he was a child who had a lot of sensory integrative issues. And he he was playing outdoors and I was watching him. Play outdoors. And he was really terribly, terribly boring <laughs> to watch outdoors. He he was climbing up the slide and going down the slide. And this, this child was sort of, he was more than six. He was somewhere between six and eight. But he climbed up the slide and he went down the slide and climbed up the slide and went down the slide. And he just did that forever. And these two other children who were on the playground with him at the same time, they came over and said, would you like to play with us? Now, of course, what they wanted, they were, this was in the days when you had merry-go-rounds on, um, on playgrounds, and they wanted him to push. But they didn't say that. They asked him if he would like to play. Him, and this would have been a child who probably not very many children um, asked him to play. And his response to those two boys was, um, no, I'm busy. And he was busy going up and down the slide. So, um, and I watched him do that for like 15 minutes and he did nothing else. And so then I uh, we also watched the children indoors and I wasn't scoring his play observation indoors because different people scored them outdoors versus indoors, but I was there when he was playing indoors and he was like a completely different child. He was, um, it was near Thanksgiving. And he was directing all the other children to make a Thanksgiving dinner. So they had a shoe, which they had turned into a turkey, and he was he was just completely in charge of that whole play situation. And so, um, so I just became very fascinated with the idea that that well, of course, did sensor integration affect his play? It absolutely did, but it didn't keep him from playing. And in fact, he was a great player. In um, in certain circumstances, and that of course was not being captured on the um, the standardized assessments that we were using of his play. So that's how I got um, that's how I got into play research. And when I finished that, when I finished my doctoral work, I um, I started thinking. I used the preschool play scale um, to observe play. And I realized at some point that I um that the preschool play school scale was about the skills that children use when they play. It was not really about the play itself, which is how that child was not being captured very well um, by standardized assessment. And so I thought, well, I'll never do that again. Um, I'll find a test that really looks at play itself, but they're really weren't aren't very many of those kind of of assessments around most assessments really do look at the skills that children use when they play and so I um I got engaged with several colleagues in developing the test of playfulness to look at the actual um interactions that children had not so much what they did not so much the activity or the skills they used but it, although skills are a piece of it, but more about the transaction that was play itself, and so I worked on that for quite a long time, and um, then I went to Sydney to work. I worked for the University of Sydney, and I was interested in doing research with play, and I was interested in something that that somebody would fund because play research isn't really a a lot of funders list, and I. Um, gathered a group of colleagues around me who were interested in play in the way that I was interested in it. And so there were, um, this was a really interdisciplinary group. So we had a human geographer, a pediatric exercise science person, a, a child psychologist, um, and me. That was the core group that, that started out. And so we sat down and thought, what would, um, what would we like to do that would um, inform all of our disciplines? and would be, um, would actually capture play in the way that we wanted to do that. And so that we started something called the Sydney Playground Project, which was, which actually was using play as a medium to, in the beginning, to to promote children's um, physical activity. Um, But we were very clear that what we were, what we were doing, what we were going to promote would be play itself. So it wasn't going to be, we weren't going to just put, Um, Oh, you know, there's many, many ways that that researchers use to promote physical activity. But we didn't want to do any of those things. We didn't want to draw lines on the playground. We didn't want to leave sporting goods equipment around. We didn't want to do any of that stuff. We wanted to actually promote play in groups of children. So we started out with a, um, a cluster randomized trial in regular mainstream schools. And we were funded by the government, by the Australian government, to do this project. And we put recycled materials on the playground on a, a whole series of playgrounds and it was really easy to get the kids to play the play they, the kids you know they loved this stuff they thought it was just great it had it had no obvious play value so it was things like tires and um oh I don't know pool noodles and we had a whole we had a series of seven different um, criteria that had to be met for us to put these materials on the playground. And we changed them periodically and we added to them. And so, you know, barrels, all kinds of different things that we just got from places and put on the playground. And it was really easy. The kids loved it. And in fact, it was so popular that school school principals started doing things like rostering children to the playground and, and so or onto the recycled materials when they were on the playground. So you had to um, only first and second graders, for example, were allowed to use it on a certain day. And and, um, so that that did kind of muck up the research a little bit because nobody bothered to tell us that they were doing that. But the the children loved it. But the adults, the adults didn't love it so much. The adults were convinced that something terrible was going to happen to the children, that they were going to get hurt. And so, I mean, for example, we, we used pool noodles. We gave children pool noodles. And you can imagine that the first thing kids do when they have pool noodles is they start playing with them like they are swords. And I was on the playground one day when a teacher the teacher said to me, "You've taken the pool noodles off." I was like, "Oh, yeah." She said, "Yes." Um, a child, and she named the child. He came in the other day from recess, and he had a graze on his nose. And I could just imagine him going home, and his mother would be just livid that he had a graze on his nose. And I thought, yeah, right. His mother's probably saying. Yeah, what happened to your nose? Yeah, I got hit by a noodle, you know. <laughs> so, so anyway, we we added to our Sydney so Playground Project risk reframing workshop. So we, we put parents and teachers in the same room, and we gave them a series of activities to do. They are mostly talking about things. And among them, you know, what did you do? What could you not wait to get to when you left school as a child? And those things were almost always dangerous play, risky play, if you will. They were water, they were trees, they were they were going down hills fast on bicycles or in carts or whatever. And they almost always ended with the same sentence. It was like we we would never let kids do that today. And so I started to, I heard that so often that I started asking parents, well, were, were your parents negligent? because there were never any adults in these stories. It was always only the children. And so I started asking them, were were your parents negligent? I mean, should they have been there? Or did you learn something that you might not have learned if if they had been there? And they would think about that and talk about that. And almost always they would come back and say, you know, we've learned to take responsibility. We learned to think, can I do this? And not just can I do this, but can my little brother do this? Because often it was um, siblings playing together. And so you'd have to think, well, will he be safe doing that? And they, they said, you know, um, if a parent had been there, we wouldn't have thought about it. The parents would have said, yes, you can do that or no, you can't do that. And And you could almost see the penny drop with with these folks when they'd start to think that it's like, oh wow, when do our children learn to do that? <laughs> when did they learn to take responsibility for their actions? So, so that while I don't necessarily think that we the stuff that we put on the playground was very risky, um <laughs> adults that the teachers thought it was risky and they were very afraid that that parents would think it was risky and that something would happen to the child and then they would be blamed for it. So that sort of got me intrigued with this idea of um risk reframing and risky play and what are the benefits of risky play and um how do we promote it. And there are a group of researchers around the world who are interested in this phenomenon of risky play. So I've sort of joined a, a relatively small group of people, although it's a growing group of people who are interested in risky play. And you know, I would say that that. For me, it's because I'm an occupational therapist and my colleagues are not. Um, I'm interested in, in more than risky play. I'm interested in being able to take risks in everyday life and manageable risks in everyday life and the benefits of, of that. And what are, the, what are the problems if you don't take any risks. So I think that this issue is not just with children and play, but it's also with, with folks with disability. It's the same with old people and you know we, at, all, at all costs, everyone seems to want to keep people safe um, and that uh, we don't seem to think very much about what are the consequences of never allowing people to step outside their comfort zone.
0: Thank you for sharing that progression because I heard so many interesting things in there that I'd love to unpack this idea of trying to measure play skill when what we really needed to do was look more at the ingredients of play, like what what characterizes play, not what does a play skill look Mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to, um, answering some of those questions seemed to lead you ultimately and kind of organically to exposing children to things that adults suddenly decided were potentially risky, which then led you to think about risk assessment. And because of your background and because of who you are professionally, you started to have some questions around the developmental trajectory almost of like, what happens if we don't experience some of these essential ingredients of play that is voluntary, that it's pro-social, right? That it, it, you know, it is play for play's sake. It's intrinsically motivated and then risky play. You could um, maybe pile on some ingredients um, like you mentioned inherently um, near risky um, substances like water. So I'd like to unpack that a little bit. Like what are some of the ingredients that you're looking for that characterize play? What are some of the ingredients that you look for that would characterize risky play? And how have you figured um, that those ingredients ended up being kind of essential for risk assessment and for the development of daily comfort with risks? Um, and maybe if they don't, if those ingredients aren't um available or if those ingredients aren't um part of the play what are we at risk of not developing
1: when i was doing my doctoral work um my my supervisor said to me well of course you will have to define play and i sort of thought that was a kind of silly statement because everyone knows what play is and then i started you know very seriously looking into play literature and i realized that no, an awful lot of play literature starts with the same sentence, and that is no one has ever successfully defined play and And I think that is because um people from all sorts of professions are interested in play um, it, you know biologists are interested in play and sociologists and anthropologists and and all sorts of people are interested in play, but I think occupational therapists have um are interested in the phenomenon of play itself and so I started looking for good definitions of that would fit occupational therapists, and I actually borrowed a definition from a woman named Eva Newman, who wrote um, who wrote a book, and it was her doctoral work called "The Elements of Play," and she um, offered a really, I think, a lovely. um, Well, I turned it into a graphic, but she offered a really nice conceptualization of play, and she said. You know, play is not—it's um, not in contrast with work. So, um, first of all, we need to get that off the table. That that play is in contrast with non-play, and play and non-play are a continuum. It's not that something is either play or it's non-play. And she said there are three elements that um, contribute to play, and those things are also on continua. So they're Present to a greater or lesser extent, it's not an either or they they either are or they aren't. It's a continuum and it you it's I started to think about it like like a scale with um, weights that you could move um, and you could offset if one of those elements was not so much present, then you could offset it with one of the other elements and she said those elements were um intrinsic motivation that is relative intrinsic motivation. I'm doing this or the player is doing it really because they want to do it. Relative internal control. So the player feels like they have control over some control over the situation. But um, so who am I playing with? What am I playing? Something about how it's going to come out, but you can never have total control. You don't want total control because then it, it becomes boring. So there has to be a little bit of um, a little bit of play in it. But you, but you need to feel as though you're in charge. And at the very least, a player can say, "I'm taking my choice and going home now. I don't want to play anymore." So they have to retain at least that much control. And then the third element that um, Newman talked about was the suspension of reality. So she said the player had the right to decide how close to objective reality a particular play transaction would be. And, of course, the best, you know, the, the most common examples of suspension of reality are pretend. Pretend is probably the most um, common one of that. But I think there are probably other ways of suspending reality. So it's it's breaking the rules a little bit. It's So it's mischief, I think, is a kind of suspension of reality. And, uh, you know, there are other examples as well. And so I borrowed Newman's conceptualization of play, and I added to that the work of Gregory Bateson, and he was interested in framing. He was interested in the cues. In particular, he started out being interested in the cues that even animals would give. So he was interested in metacognition, meta um, metacommunication. And he was interested in whether non-humans who who, who weren't speaking could actually communicate. In other ways, now of course you have to remember this is quite a long time ago, and he talked about um, monkeys on Monkey Island and how they would be running around, chasing each other, grabbing each other's tails, growling, fighting, and and if you just said that, made that description and said to someone, "What are they doing?" Probably people would say they were fighting, but the monkeys didn't think they were fighting. The people who were watching didn't think that they were fighting. So somehow. Those monkeys were able to give out cues that said, "This is not for real. This is just pretender. This is just play." Um, and so, occasionally, of course, you know, a monkey would bite too hard, or and then, you know, you you know what happens then, and you know, the play stops because then it isn't play anymore. So, I added that little bit to my conceptualization of play and playfulness.
0: You were beginning your research at a time where play hadn't been defined and described quite as much as it is in current literature Mm. Um, and maybe hadn't we hadn't captured um, or defined it um, as well as maybe some of the literature has now so I love the amalgamation of like those two ideas because it's what is play and when does play stop too like that I can take my things and go home is control, but then if I take it too far, it's no longer playful and um, there's a social consequence to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that marries really well with this idea of risky play because when, when it is playful and when we're taking risk, let's say around water, but then the risk was too great, there seems to be a message that's sent to our system that helps us with future risk assessment. And Mm -hmm. that is something that we wonder if it's missing when we don't allow risky play Mm -hmm. and that it might have consequences that we don't fully understand. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. What stops us from taking risks, and maybe it's the adults in the room, (laughs) (laughs) um, and then what how do we benefit when we take a risk and it goes a little too far?
1: Well, what stops us? I mean, I do think for very young children, it is often adults who stop them. Now, some children are not stoppable. Some children are going to take risks no matter what you do. But but when the children hear repeatedly the message, you can't do that, you're going to get hurt, don't do that. Um I think they many children, probably not all, but many children internalize that and and learn or learn is the wrong word, but but begin to feel that they are not capable. And so they stop trying to take risks. Um, and so what are the consequences of that? I think what those parents were saying in risk reframing that the children don't learn what their limits are and and they don't learn what they're capable of or maybe what they're not capable of. And of course children will sometimes cross the line. I mean, if you're learning where your limits are, you will sometimes cross those limits and you will sometimes get hurt. And we're we're not hoping that children have serious injuries, but if you went through life without ever having a bruise or a scrape or a cut, I, you know, that just means you haven't done you haven't done all you're capable of doing. Now, the term risky play came from the work of a woman, an early childhood educator named Ellen Viadi Sansetter. And um she's she's someone that I'm working with now in on the on a project in Norway, and we're looking at virtual reality and, and risk, um, risky play. So I think in the long run, and this is me, this is just conjecture really, is that you know, we have started to see a whole group of University students, for example, who are extremely anxious, um, they have and I think they've been held to an unreasonable standard all their lives. You know, they have they're always supposed to be perfect and everything they do is right and they never do anything wrong. And and so I think that's that's not a realistic standard. But then when they get to university and they've been that way all their lives, they've always been the top of their class and, you know, they've been above average in everything, um, well, of course, that isn't going to be maintained forever. And so they become terribly anxious. And then we see another group of children who, they're not children anymore, but youth who go off to university, for example, they've never been independent. They've never had to, to determine their own routines, their own schedules. And they go off to university and they become just wild children, you know, for maybe for only a short period of time. But because they've never been they've never had the opportunity to test their limits and to to go to a certain level of of risk, um, they just don't know how to handle that.
0: I like that both of those examples give a different um, to perspective on limitations. So, in one example, there were the students who've always been top of the class, top of the heap, right? And now they're finding themselves running up against their human limitations and it's making them anxious. And then in the other example, the people maybe never got to test their limits or take risks um, within the context of their development. And so, when the you know, supervising adults <laughs> are no longer uh, there on the daily, um, they decide that's probably a good time to, to test their limits. Um, and it both, both examples talk about limits and limitations and that inherently the ability or being allowed to take risks in the context of play and maybe with lesser stakes because they're three or five or mm-hmm. seven. Would be the ideal time to let them test limits because when they're testing their limits, it's maybe jumping out of a tree where their arm could get broken, but they probably won't die versus once they go to university and they test their limits and it's involving substances or something where their life could be more at risk. So mm-hmm. that's a really interesting um, just a really interesting observation that now we're looking at, the outcomes of maybe not being allowed to take those risks and seeing we need to maybe think about how we're allowing kids to play. What are some of the obstacles to that you have found or what are some of the common concerns you hear from caregivers? Why not? Why not let them play in a risky
1: way? Well, I think it depends on who you are. But very commonly, um, why not let a child play Many parents or teachers will say, "I would let my own child do that, but I won't let other children do it. I don't know what they're capable of I don't want if someone's at my house and I'm watching them and they get hurt i will I'm afraid that I will be blamed and teachers similarly would say, if a child on my watch, gets hurt in some way, I'll, I could lose my job, which of course is not realistic and is probably not going to happen. I and mean, we're not talking about head injuries; we're talking about, you know, very minor injuries. But so I think that's one thing that that keeps people, keeps adults, from allowing children to um, to engage in risky play. That the fear that they will be they will be thought to be a bad parent or a bad teacher or um, or not good enough to supervise someone else's children. I think that's probably the biggest reason why adults don't now don't let children take risks and get involved in risky play. And of course, I mean I, the over if you ask people why they don't let them, why they don't let their children do particular kinds of risky play, the most common thing the most common fear is that children will be abducted, um, and that's almost universal. That there's a fear that if I let my child go out and play out of my sight or out of an adult, a supervising adult's sight, then they could be um, abducted.
0: Yeah, as a, as an ingredient for risky play or part of the definition of risky play is that there's not adults present, right? So um, allowing your child to go out and explore in groups by themselves. Um, I, as a parent, that resonates with me. Um, I grew up in the late seventies and early eighties when, you know, there was a lot of talk about abduction and I also um, have four children of my own and three of the four children had what I would call very little self-preservation as toddlers. They loved (laughs) risk and they loved risky play. And when you said that about knowing their capabilities, that rang true to me because I knew that they could land it if they jumped off something so high. Um, <laughs> yeah. But my friends would panic because I would let them do that. Um, but one of my children in particular, I would tell like a babysitter, for example, you know, if you think he might, he will. Like <laughs> there is not going to be a stop. So don't like if, you know, if he's standing on the top of an 18 foot tower, he will jump. He just would. He didn't really have that. Um you know, self-preservation kind of button. Um, and so my sisters and I both share that, that a lot of our children take really big risks, <laughs> but I knew their capabilities. Like I knew a lot of times he could jump from six or seven feet and land it. Um, and I'd say, don't jump, you'll get hurt. And he would jump and say, see, I didn't get hurt. And he was testing his limits. Like I, I he knew confidently he could jump six feet and land it. And it was me being worried that he went and landed. So all of that really resonated with me, both as a parent and as um, you know, someone who grew up at a time when media exposure to the terrible things that happen really made made our generation maybe a little too insistent on the supervision and you know really shortened you know, our tolerance of allowing them to be unsupervised and explore. Yeah.
1: You know, I think children are remarkably good at knowing their limits. Um, You know, I've watched so many children on playgrounds and in other places now. And for the most part, I mean, an occasional, there's a, occasionally a child will go past where, you know, they They shouldn't have done that. But for the most part, they are remarkably good at knowing their limits. And, you know, we did the Sydney Playground Project for more than a decade. Um, And in that time, we had one um, accident that required some kind of care. It was a child. It was actually a child with autism. And he stacked milk crates on top of each other. And I don't know, like, Four of them, and got up on top and fell off and broke his arm. And he, uh, he, they had the school of course had to call his mother. And the child, when he got up off the ground, said, "I knew I shouldn't do that." And when they called his mother, she said, "He did know he shouldn't do that. He did something like that once before and he broke the other arm." So, um, <laughs> so, but for the most part, I mean, in more than a decade, and I, countless children in countless schools. That was the only um, accident that we had. And it it wasn't, I mean, even then the the parents, they they weren't distressed and the child wasn't distressed, like, oops, I shouldn't have done that. And yes, he has a broken arm, but as you said, he's not going to die from a broken arm. So,
0: I'm interested about that child. You mentioned that he had a diagnosis of autism. Have you looked at any research for children with neurodevelopmental or motor developmental differences and limitations around play?
1: Well, half of the Sydney Playground Project was done with um, children with autism. And they were it was a programs that were substantially separate or and one of the schools was it was a mainstream school, but it had a substantially separate program for children who had mostly autism, and could be autism and and intellectual disability. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I just even think back on my own practice. And I remember, you know, being really afraid that a child would, um, something bad would happen to them. I remember taking, I, I have no, I'm sure we wouldn't be doing this today, but um, I remember taking a child to a fair and must we had, we had like three or four of the kids were there and this little boy had athetoid cerebral palsy and he wanted in the worst way to ride by himself in one of the sort of cars that goes on a track and I was really scared to death to let him do that and the guy who was running the car said, just let him do it. I mean, if something happens, we can always stop these cars. And by the time he was done, he, was, he had fallen all the way down inside of the car. He couldn't see a thing. But he did it all himself. And he was so excited that he had done that himself. And I mean, I think that's It's really important. I just can't imagine being someone who, for all of your life, are never allowed to do anything that's even mildly risky because you could get hurt. And that message that I'm not capable of doing anything is such a strong and horrible message to give to children. And the Children in the Sydney Playground Project, we found that um, and one of the pro- one of the programs that we were involved with was a program that really they talked about recesses being play lessons. And they um, if a child was on the playground for more than like two minutes without engaging a play, then an adult would go and engage the child in play. And our students started coming back and saying, you know, we don't think that those kids know there are other kids on the playground. They wait for an adult to come up and engage them in doing something. And that was in contrast with um, uh, the program where children were, it was a mainstream school. And the children were just expected to do a lot. And they did. Um, they, They benefited a lot from the playground project much more than the children in the in the school where they did play lessons. And, you know, they were really um, proud of the fact that they were promoting play. And when you think about it, when, you know, at first blush, promoting play should have been a desirable thing. And parents really wanted their child to go to this school, but actually turned out that they weren't really promoting play. They were promoting dependence on adults
0: interesting the, which you mentioned about the roller coaster and you know the child with cerebral palsy the joy attained through independence and autonomy and then the the example on the playground of play lessons where we teach them just wait two minutes and an adult will engage you right so it's like a dependence on adults um again and so i wonder about that, again, as an ingredient for play and for risky play, is autonomy, is body agency, and, you know, maybe allowing them to stand there for a little while until they can figure (laughs) out how to move their body for play. So interesting. I love this topic. Um, If people are interested in this topic, I, I captured some of the names that you mentioned so that they could maybe look up um some of the the authors that you referenced and I'll definitely include them in the show notes. Um, but is there any voice that you really like in this space or any particular research that you think is interesting that they could look up?
1: Um, there's a lot of Sydney Playground project um, research that's been published. I think all of the work that Ellen Beati Sandsetter has done is really fascinating work. Uh, you know in Norway there are an awful lot of outdoor preschools. And her a lot of her work has been done in those outdoor preschools. Um, Mariana Veroni, who's uh, she's an injury she began as an injury prevention person at, at the University of British Columbia. Her work is really really interesting. Um, there's folks in the UK who've done quite a lot of um, looking at risk benefit analyses. Um so David Ball, if you just Google Risky Play, you'll get a relatively small group. Tim Gill is the name I was trying to think of. Tim Gill's a, a person from the UK who's done a lot of work in Risky Play. So there is, you know, there's sort of a, a kind of a core group of people that you'll find if you just Google Risky Play. <laughs>
0: Yes, thank you. And of course, that's in addition to looking you up on the Colorado State University website, because I you're obviously very well-versed in this and well-published. And if anybody's interested in seeing your work, all your publications are listed there as well. Um, I always like to end our conversations um, asking a question. And that question is, at STAR, we place a really high value on curiosity and Recognize that over time things change and things evolve, and the science leads us to unexpected places. So we have to be humble in our willingness to follow the science. And it often requires us to change our minds about something. So <laughs> I'm just curious about maybe something that you once believed that you've changed your mind about.
1: Well, I think play in general is something that I changed my mind about. Um, you know, I probably started out like Many, many people uh, of my generation and even since me, thinking that play was what you do when you're done with everything else. You know, when it's it's sort of uh, it's spare time and whoever has any of that. So it's you no, know, it's not a very important thing. And I have come to see that it is. A, it's a hugely important thing. And I've also changed my beliefs. And I think I alluded to this earlier is that. I've changed my beliefs about what is our role um, as a professional and as an occupational therapist trying to help people to lead the life they want to lead. And um, I think that I have changed my beliefs about that a lot. It's not my life. It's someone else's life. And um, they have a right to take risks. And in fact, pretty much their entire life will be a risk. So if you don't if you don't embrace risk, you're not going to do very much, and what a sad way to live your life. And it's our—I I believe it is our responsibility—to help people prepare to take risk. And I'm—I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not thinking that that somebody a parent's going to open the door and say bye, see ya. Um, I, you know, I think you, you do help children to prepare to take risks. And and that's really important. And I think as OTs, our job is to help people prepare to take risks.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's a really important message. And a call to action maybe for other occupational therapists to think about the ways that we help our clients prepare for risk and maybe teach parents, if you're in the pediatric space, um, how they themselves could work on their tolerance for risk or how they themselves could prepare their children um, through model, you know, modeling what we might do, or even just helping them in parent education.
1: If you take place seriously, it will cause you a lot of problem as a therapist. <laughs> the more seriously you take it, the more, the more it will cause you a problem. And it's a problem worth embracing.
0: Oh, I love that. It's a problem worth embracing. That's great. Thank you so much, not just for being here today, but for the important work that you've done in your career. I sure have enjoyed looking up your work and I have learned a tremendous amount. So thank you for for modeling what it looks like to follow a curiosity and to contribute to the body of work around it in a really purposeful, meaningful way. So I really appreciate it.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for showcasing this work.
0: You can find me, Carrie Schmidt, on Instagram at Carrie Schmidt OTD. That's C A R R I E S C H M I T T O T D. The STAR Institute is a nonprofit organization. You can find out more about us at our website, sensoryhealth.org. That's S E N S O R Y H E A L T H.org. There, you can join our email list. Find out about our educational, clinical, and research endeavors and make a donation. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our wonderful guests and the support from the star Institute. Your feedback matters to us. Please leave us a review, subscribe to this podcast, and share this episode with your friends. This is Making Sense. I'm Carrie Schmidt.